sheets. No source sheets this time. I do want to say, reiterate what we said last time, is that we're going to try to keep the questions until the end. So what we're probably going to do is, is maybe have like every quarter or whatever it is and have pauses so there'll be questions, but no full-on questions until the end so that it flows and clarity. As well, before we start, I want to say Alechayim, that Alechayim, for the soldiers right now that are battling in Gaza, um, there's literally people from this neighborhood. Going, it's crazy. Like literally people that you know, it's, it's an unbelievable thing. So L'chaim, they should be protected. They should have tremendous success. We should stop. No more notifications about soldiers falling. It will just be success and uh, clear victory from here on out. What? Yes, come home soon safely. Amen. Okay, so Ben actually mentioned to me after Myrev tonight that he said that the Menorah is not just a mitzvah, but it represents the relationship that we have to Hashem. So I told Ben... That's actually what we're going to be talking about tonight. So that's what we're going to be talking about tonight, okay? We'll start off like this. In Gemara Masech the Shabbos, good evening. In Gemara Masech the Shabbos it says, Daf Chafres, Daf, excuse me, Daf Chaf Aleph Amit Beis, it says that there's three different ways to light the menorah. Very famous Gemara. The first way to light the menorah, which is the easiest, then you would say, quote-unquote, the lowest way of lighting the menorah, is every member, every, excuse me, every household lights one candle per night. So that would be Hanukkah, eight nights. Every night, everyone just comes around, lights a candle. That would be Hanukkah. The second way is that every night of Hanukkah, every single member of the household lights one light. So that would be all eight nights. Everyone sits down every night, comes together, everyone has their little candle, and they light it. The third option, which the, Gemara, the words the Gemara uses, is Mahadrin Minha Mahadrin, which you might have seen on the signs and the shuk and the Yerushalayim in some places, the big hechsherim, mahadrin, minah mahadrin. What's mahadrin, minah mahadrin? In the case of Hanukkah, it's that every single night, every member of the household lights an additional light for that light. So the question is very obvious. We know in general, we don't always do mahadrin, minah mahadrin. In most mitzvahs, in fact, this is the only mitzvah in the entire Torah that the roiv, and you could even say not the roiv, every single Jew, this is the only mitzvah. What? No, not mid- Oh, you're saying, yeah, yeah, midrabana. But I'm saying it's the only mitzvah that we have that there's clearly a list of options of how to do it. And everybody does. There's nobody on this planet. I don't think you can find me one Jew who celebrates the mitzvah of Hanukkah by lighting one candle. Nobody does the first two. Everybody does the third one. What? I don't know about Taymanim. That's a whole different thing. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm kidding. No, but everyone basically, the majority lights Mahajim and Mahajim. So the question is, why are we doing Mahajim and Mahajim? Why isn't most Jews told, okay, fine, you know, you can do light one candle. Everybody lights a candle every night according to the corresponding to the number of nights. So to understand the answer to this question, this is actually brought by the Arachayim. If you would have a source sheet, you would know. It's the Arachayim. And we on be on source number two, but we don't have a source sheet, so we just have to go through it mentally. But if we're moving to source number three, we have to first understand, in order to answer this question of why there's three different levels and why we do the highest level, we need to understand how Hashem runs the world. We always say that God runs the world, and that there's a pratis and divine providence. So the question is, how does God run the world? And the answer is, there is three general different ways that Hashem runs the world. Way number one is through the laws of nature, Teva, exactly. There's science. One plus one equals two. You could look at the world. You could say this is science. This is fact. This is what's going to happen. The sun's going to rise in the east and set in the west. This is the way the world runs. That's the first way. The second way is when Hashem makes a miracle that is enclosed in nature. 
What's a perfect example of that? The Maccabees. The Maccabees in Hanukkah. Could you say, meaning if somebody would sit down to you, if an atheist would sit down for you and say, oh, let's have a debate about prove me Judaism is right. And you would say the Maccabees. He would say all the time you have football games where the team that's worse wins. Meaning, okay, fine, that happens. It could happen that the smaller team wins. <laughs> Sometimes the Lions lose. No, Meaning, win, <laughs> so you could say the Maccabees, it's not an open miracle. Okay, so this time they got lucky. You could say one time the Jews got lucky. The Maccabees, they were, maybe they were very good at sneaking around. And even though they were small force, maybe they were just very tactically brilliant. And you could say it's not a miracle. And the same with Israel, the Six-Day War. Everyone says that's a miracle. But someone, an atheist, could say to you, it's not a miracle. That happens all the time. Okay, fine. So maybe, uh, I don't know what happened. The, this time the Arabs got scared. A whole bunch of different anomalies fell into place. And that's just by chance. It's not an open miracle. So that's the second way Hashem runs the world. Is that it's a miracle, but it's enclosed in nature. You can't definitely point it and say, that is a miracle. The third way that Hashem runs the world is an absolutely open miracle for no reason. The second way I forgot to add is that if Hashem makes a miracle in nature, but there's a reason for it. For example, with the Maccabees, we needed to survive. If the Maccabees wouldn't have won, we would have been dead. So God had to make a miracle. The third way is that Hashem makes a miracle that is not enclosed in nature. It's completely openly miraculous and for no reason whatsoever. And what's a perfect example of that is the oil on Hanukkah. The oil burning for eight nights on Hanukkah was an openly revealed miracle. Nobody could look at that oil and say it's an oil that's going to burn for eight nights. But at the same time, there was no reason for the oil to need to burn for eight nights. We get so excited. They only had enough for one night and it burned for eight nights. There's no reason whatsoever that the oil needed to burn for eight nights. According to Halacha, if they would have only had Tuma oil, they could have lit the Tuma oil until the guy would have gone on his horse and got new oil. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. There's a Halacha that says that for the Tzibur, they could have lit the Manairah with impure oil and that would have been not a problem at all. So that the question is, why did Hashem have to do this? And the answer is for no reason. Hashem made an open and revealed miracle and there was no, it was not about our survival. It was just Hashem said, this is a miracle. Here's a miracle. And that's it. So now the question is, why are we saying these three? How does that answer our original question? Is because we say, like Ben said tonight, that our relationship to Hashem is exactly that. We always say it's a relationship. What does it mean it's a relationship? Think about it like a marriage. The way you act towards your spouse, the way you act towards Hashem, is the way that Hashem acts back towards you. Which means, let's say in a marriage, in the context of a marriage, let's say in a marriage you only do the bare minimum, right? You guys divide up the jobs, you do the dishes, you take out the garbage, she does the laundry, whatever it is, and you only stick to your jobs, and that's your whole marriage. There's never a surprise, there's never any romance, there's never any excitement, it's always that, 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 this is the checklist, that's a marriage. What kind of marriage is that? That's option number one. That's the laws of nature. A marriage could technically survive in that sphere, right? The second way is that you do things extra. You're passionate, you're excited, right? When you do a mitzvah, you're excited about the mitzvah. For example, like we were saying, Hanukkah. Hanukkah is a holiday that people are naturally excited about. It's not like you have to be extra holy and you're saying like, wow, I'm being so holy. It's like naturally something about Hanukkah is exciting for us. Like, it's like Christmas. Right? You don't have to be a big believer in, in Yashka you, to actually believe. It's just exciting. People like the gifts and the tree and everything. It's the same for Hanukkah. People are excited. They're passionate. And that's a good thing. That's a very good thing. It's a very high level of serving Hashem. Is that you don't just serve Hashem out of the bare minimum and the bare obligation. But you do it because you want to do it. You're excited about it. You're passionate about it. 
But the third level, what's Mahadri Mina Mahadri? What's the highest of the high? Is that you don't do it because you're excited about it. You do it because you completely are giving yourself over to Hashem. Which the word for that we use is called Mesiras Nefesh. Which I think the best example of this, which I've heard about, is that the Balatanya would all the time, incessantly, he would say, and they even made a song about it, an eighth day, if there's literally a song, they're using these Yiddish words, he would always say, which means the Alter Rebbe would say that I don't want your Gan Eden, I don't want your Elam Hava, I only want you. He would say that all the time. I don't want all your, the Giluyim, I don't want all the rewards I'm going to get for being a Jew, I just want God himself. So it's very interesting because I prepared this year yesterday and then I actually was talking about this with my wife for a long time because in general, let's say you have an outreach, let's say you have a teenager, right? And the teenager is not so inspired about Judaism. And he's, like, he's a little bit troubled and he's having a hard time. And then they bring the teenager to the rabbi and they say, Rabbi, make this kid from, you know, you know, fix him. <laughs> Your Y.Y. Jacobson has an amazing line. He went there to give a speech and he's like, he said, he refers to kids. He said, when people come to him and they bring their kids, the parents say, fix the nachas machine. The nachas machine is broken. It's not making any nachas. You have to make it make nachas. What's it doing? And they say, look at it, it's not doing it. And they send him to the therapist and the rabbi and they say, fix it. So what do you say to this kid? So some people would say that Judaism is very effective. How do you prove that Judaism is real? How do you prove that Judaism is the truth? How do you get inspired? Is that it's amazing. Look at it. We're amazing people. We have amazing customs. When you're a religious Jew, your life is good and it has consistency and it has meaning and it's rich. Fantastic. But that's only the second way. That only goes to a certain point. Why? Because what happens when it doesn't work? What happens when a person has complete emunah bitachin and Hashem, but their relationship is only a reciprocative relationship, which means that I only serve Hashem as long as everything is good. I say, Hashem, look, I come to Minyan, I give tzedakah, and look, now I have health in my family, I have a good business, everything is going well, and we say, now Hashem, we can have this relationship, this is a great relationship. Now what happens when a tragedy hits, chas v'shalom, if a tragedy hits? What happens when October 7th happens? Then we say, wait a second, Hashem, now it's, now you're not, you know, I was from, and you let October 7th happen. How did that, that's not a fair deal. And the second way only goes up to that point. As long as it works, we're going to have a relationship. But right when there's something like October 7th, that catastrophic, something happens in someone's life that could shake everything, then they're shook and they say, I can't believe in Hashem now. How could I believe in Hashem anymore? Now it's, the third way is saying, I completely understand that I have no, I, I can't even, what it means, God, what Hashem means, what Abishter means, is beyond me completely. And to believe in Hashem is not that I believe in Hashem as long as I see the revealed good. I believe in Hashem because it's the truth. And the truth means that it's a fact through and through. So it doesn't matter if I think that it's good, if I see the revealed good, it doesn't matter if I see a tragedy. To me, it's a fact and it's the truth and that is the reality and I give myself over to that. It's Mesir Nefesh. So the reason why, to answer this question then, why is Hanukkah, the holiday, that we say, that we do Mahajrim and Mahajrim, why is it the only holiday that we do the best way and every single Jew does the best way? Is to commemorate how the Jews acted at that time. What am I referring to? It says in Jewish history that in Megillah, I forgot what the name of the Megillah is, but it speaks about the story of what happened at that time. It says that Yechon on the Kohen Gadol, when he confronted the general at that time, 
His name was Nicanor or something like that. Let me actually check my notes. If we would have source sheets, then we wouldn't have to do this. Oh my gosh, who didn't print the source sheets? It says like this, Nicanor, yes, he brought a chazer on the Mizbeach. He brought a pig on the altar, right? And he told Yochanan, the Kohen Gadol, Yochanan ben Matisyahu, he said, you have to bring a pig on the altar. And Yochanan, the Kohen Gadol, showed up. And he said that he was shocked. He couldn't believe that he showed up. He's supposed to be the Kohen Gadol. He thought these Jews, they give over everything. This guy's supposed to be the Holy of Holies. Well, this guy's coming to, sh- to shech the pig on the altar. And he says, listen, yes. He said, I came to, I'm here to, you know, do what you want. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shech the, I'm going to slaughter a pig on the Mizbeach. And he says, really? He says, yeah. He says, I just think that if other people are in the room, then it's going to spread the rumor amongst the Jewish people that the Kohen Gadol slaughtered a pig and they're going to stone me and kill me. So if you actually want me to, to convert to Greek mythology, then you need to make sure they're not in the room because they're going to kill me right afterwards. You need me to be this leader that's going to inspire all the Jews to come because that's what they wanted. They wanted them to be Greek. So he says, you're right. And he sends all the people out. And Yochanan, he prayed to Hashem. It says he took three steps forward. He took a sword and he stabbed Nicanor in the chest. So Jews at that time were acting in crazy levels. The problem was, like what we've seen in history, is that Nicanor was not the issue. Nicanor was one general. It seemed like, oh, if you kill Osama bin Laden, we're going to solve all the issues, right? As long as we get rid of Osama, then everything is clean. That's not the way it works. There's always, it's like, you know, you chop off the snake's head, you have seven more heads come back. So another guy came up, his name was Bigas, Bagris, excuse me. And he was even worse than Nicanor. And it says that the Jewish people, thousands of Yidin went, and they hid in caves in the wilderness, and they were celebrating, they were being Jewish and from in the caves. Now the question is, let me ask you halakhically, did the Jewish people, for every mitzvah, need to give up their life? We know they don't. We know there's only three mitzvahs that Jews need to give up their life for. And yet, what were they doing in the wilderness? The reason why they left is because one of the decrees that Bagris made was that they couldn't keep Shabbos. So the Jewish people said, we can't keep Shabbos. They went to the wilderness, and they were keeping Shabbos in the caves. Unfortunately, they were told on, Somebody went to the general and said that there's these Jews in the wilderness and they're celebrating Shabbos in these caves. He went and a thousand Jewish people were killed. Men, women, and children in the caves. He burned them. Because they were in the caves, he sent fire in and he burned them in the caves. The Jewish people at that time were acting above and beyond anything. There was no reason why, even halakhically, why they had to do that. But they said to themselves, we are not going to be, we're not going to give up our religion. And they stood strong. I saw an amazing idea from Rabbi Sachs. Why is it that Purim, we don't say halal, and Hanukkah, we do say halal? So one of the answers given to that question, what? Eretz Yisrael, that what? Okay, so that's one answer. He brings a different answer. He brings a different answer. That what? Megillah is the halal. So Rabbi Sachs brings another answer. I don't know where he got his answer from. I read it from him. Yeah. So that's another answer. Now we have three answers. Now we're going to give you answer number four <laughs> to this question. This is a good question. We have a good, this is a good answer number four. Rabbi Sachs brings... And I actually want to see the source where he gets it from. Maybe it's his personal answer, but I think it's still a fantastic answer. Is that by Purim, we survived. In Purim, what happened? There was a decree that they were going to kill us, and we survived. We weren't killed. And that's what we're celebrating, right? We lived another day. Hanukkah, we're celebrating a victory. We're not celebrating surviving. We're celebrating defeating the enemy. It's a completely different celebration. And that you say halal for. 
So I think it's unbelievable. When I read that, I was thinking, wow, this is really all these different ideas. It's like this is so apropos to today. It's unbelievable because when you think about it, first of all, when it comes to we're talking about Mesiris Nefesh. For me, the way I follow the news, I'm sure everybody has their own way of following the news. People have TV, whatever. I have this app, and on WhatsApp, it's called Yeshiva World News or Belaz. It sounds really dorky, but they actually tell you sophisticated, and it's really sophisticated. It's really, and I, I, I check usually all the news websites. I have to say, this is fantastic, actually. And they send you all the Jewish news. Anything relevant to Jews in the world, anywhere it happens, they put on this WhatsApp. And recently, and I'm sure everyone's been checking, you see like three times a day, I see they updated the list of soldiers that were killed. They updated the list of soldiers that were killed. I think today there was three times that the numbers went up, three or four times that there was, they were updating the list. I'm thinking to myself, especially when they show that every time they show you the faces of the people, you're like, this guy, it's not like you have to tell me, oh, the Maccabees, and you have to imagine and dress up and you have to wear the cloak and wear the white and put on the, and be, imagine Matis Yahu. It's like this guy, I recognize this guy from Beit Shemesh. This guy, oh, he's a kid from Ranana. These are like people that you see day to day and you don't have to go back thousands of years in history. These are modern day heroes. Because you think about it also, like what is making them go into Gaza? What's making these soldiers go and march into Gaza with, they're literally singing. I don't know if you saw the video of the guys singing Ani Mamen on each other's shoulders. They're literally singing, going into Gaza with Amuna. It's unbelievable. They're literally modern day Maccabees, Tzadikim, whatever you want to call it. It's a mind-blowing phenomenon. And if you want to say like what it is, Mahajrim and Mahajrim, to say I'm going to give up my life for the Jewish people, for Hashem, for no reason, not because of what I'm going to get, not because of the honor I'm going to get, I'm doing it beyond anything. It's the, the soldiers today. The IDF today, it is un, it's mamish unbelievable. God willing, very soon we'll have an event and we'll celebrate and we'll be able to, you know, dance with them on our shoulders and everything and this will be over. But it's, Amen, Bekariv Mamish. It's really, it's an unbelievable thing. And I was reading this, and I was saying to myself, like, wow, this is Givaldic. It really is. It's unbelievable the people that we have in Jewish and Israeli society. And the reason why I'm saying that and highlighting that is because so many times, you hear all the time, people say, oh, you know, if, if, if Jonathan Sachs, if Rabbi, if Rabbi Lord Dr. Jonathan Sachs was around today, oh, we really miss him. We really need him. And then people say, oh, the Rebbe, if the Rebbe was here, if the Lubavitcher Rebbe was here, oh, we really need him, we really miss him. And people say, oh, if, uh, if Rav Shach was here, we really need him, we really miss him. And people go, if the Rav was here, we really need him, we really miss him. But you know what? I actually remember, and this to me was one of the most inspiring things that I heard as a young yeshiva student. I thought to myself all the, all the time, I think to myself, wow, I look at these Rebbe videos they showed us, because I never got a chance to meet the Rebbe. I'd say, wow, if he was here... And you know what? I said, this guy, I'm sitting down by a table. This guy's in his 40s. And he's like, he leans over to us. He was a little bit drunk. And he's like, you guys think that when the Rebbe would speak, everyone would sit there and listen? You think, oh, you, like, you were born in the generation of there's no Rebbe. You think everyone would sit and listen like a bunch of tzaddikim? He says, no, that's not what happened. There was guys uh, drinking under the bleachers. Forget even not being in 770. There's guys under the bleachers talking. There's guys outside smoking. Who knows what? He's like, you think it was a whole generation of tzaddikim? He said, there was no difference. Meaning one of the biggest cop-outs that we have, I think, as Jews, is we say, oh, you know, like, oh, if that was here, then we'd be good. And we always look for something which is like, oh, that's the, that's the, the, the scapegoat. That we say, oh, if, yeah. Meaning Rabbi Sachs was alive a few years ago. I've heard so many times, every time, if I quote him or something, people say, oh my gosh, if he was here, oh my gosh. It's like, he was here five years ago, there was no difference. There was nothing, nobody was any better because he was here. And not, I don't mean that he didn't make an impact. He made a tremendous impact. 
but he cannot carry everyone. Everyone needs to carry themselves. Just to be clear, I wasn't saying for a second any of them didn't do their job. They were unbelievable. But the question is, who are we, not who are they? Lamplighters. Lamplighters. That we need to be, and, and, when, and what the point that we're bringing over here is, is that today, right now, we don't need to say, even during Hanukkah, oh, the Maccabees. We have the Maccabees. These soldiers, we mamish have the Maccabees. There's no like, oh, we need to see and think about the Maccabees. These soldiers, and it doesn't matter, because some soldiers I know feel bad if they're in Gaza or they're in the north or if they're not anywhere near any border and maybe they're in less danger. Any soldier in the IDF or anyone who's really giving themselves over to what's going on is a Maccabee. And it's an unbelievable thing that we have today. Okay? I'll do a, a pause for anybody have any questions. Yes, phase two. We're going to say an idea from Rav Cook, and then we're going to end off with a story. Okay? So the idea from Rav Cook goes like this. There's a famous idea of Beishamayin Beishillah, right? The famous machlokis of how you light the menorah. Beishamayin says you start off with eight and you go down, and Beishillah says you start off with one and you go up, right? So the question is, what's the, the thinking behind their machlokis? So there's many different answers to this question of why Beishamayin says this and why Beishillah says that, and it shows you about Beisham Beishillah. And Rav Cook gives in an unbelievable answer to this question. He says, Beishamayin had a universal outlook. What does that mean? Beishamai believed that us as Jews, our mission and our purpose in this world, and he, when he wrote this, he wrote also like the state of Israel, Eretz Yisrael, what is the idea of being a Jew? Is that we are trying to bring all the nations of the world under the enlightenment of Hashem, right? And that's why it says when Mashiach comes, the final redemption is going to come. Everyone's going to have the knowledge of Hashem. That's the ultimate purpose that we're aiming for, is that everybody will understand that Hashem is one, Hashem is the true God, and that is the clarity, right? So why is it eight going to one? It's symbolizing this idea of that the entire world starts off as eight separate branches, and then it comes and it ends up in one big unified candle, right? And that's why he says Hanukkah, this was a step in that, because we defeated the Greeks who were trying to enlighten us in the other direction. It literally says about the Greeks, just like as it's crazy, sometimes the parallels of today and then. The Greeks would worship their bodies. So the Greeks would go in the Colosseum and in these big places, they would literally wrestle naked. They would take oil and put it all over their body and they would show off their bodies. And that's why Jews were stopping to get bruises because they were embarrassed that if they're going to be the big muscular Jew and they're going to come out, everyone's going to see they have a bris while they're doing the whole oil show in the Colosseum, right? And then they're the... And today, you, by the way, you have this, you have, what is it, WWE. Like we look at, hear those things and we're like, oh, this is nuts. It's like you literally have a bunch of knuckleheads jumping on top of each other. I don't even think it's real from what I understand. It's not even a real wrestling match. And people are in the stadium watching these massive guys jump on top of each other. We're not so different. And they wanted to integrate into the society. So if Cook says when we defeated that idea of another society that was trying to enlighten us, and instead we defeated them, this was a step in that process of coming to this unified, one belief, monotheistic belief in Hashem. Beis Hillel believed that the purpose of the Jewish people, the purpose of Eretz Yisrael, was not relevant to the other nations. Beis Hillel believes that's something that happens, but it's not the entire purpose. The entire purpose is our light getting stronger. Basically, if you put it in simple terms, Beis Shammai felt that the rest of the world is relevant, and Beis Hillel said they're not even relevant. It's only relevant to us. So why is it one increasing? Because it's our light increasing from ourselves. It doesn't matter what they're doing. It doesn't matter who they want to be. And it doesn't matter what they become. We only care about ourselves. So Beis Hillel, so Rav Cook says, this example can be brought about Eretz Yisrael. 
if it's like a heart. A heart can be looked at it two ways. Either you look at it is that the heart is subservient to the rest of the organs because the our heart is connected to all the other organs in the body and therefore the heart has to keep pumping and give blood and it's sort of trapped, it's connected with all these different veins to the rest of the body. So you could say the heart is subservient to the rest of the body. Or you could look at it that the heart is the most precious organ and it's protected by the rest of the body. Everything else, it is in the most precious and protected area and everything else is layers of protection for the heart. And Beis Hillel viewed it the second way. And that's why we do Beis Hillel's way because this is what we believe is the right way. Is that we don't care. Our ultimate purpose is not the rest of the world. The ultimate purpose and the ultimate focus is us. And again, relevant to today, is that the mindset, the question is, how nervous are we? Because it's a very important question, because I do think it's not something that we can disregard to say, oh, the rest of the world doesn't matter. It does matter. We do need to go to Congress and to the Senate and to the world and say, oh, you have to support Israel, you have to support the Jews, you have to send us weapons and bombs or whatever it is. We need to do that. But the question is, is that the ultimate? Is it like, oh, America support, Joe Biden said he's supporting us. Is that the ultimate thing that could happen to us? Or is the ultimate, we believe in ourselves, we believe in our own strength, and that's the most important thing. So that's another message over here in the, in the holiday of Hanukkah. So to end off with a story. The story goes like this. There was a woman named Michal. Is a woman named Michal. She's 44 years old. She, when the October 7th attack happened, was on an army base called Zikim. Her and her husband, apparently there's this organization. Her husband's an elementary school teacher and she is the head of Lumi's international uh, home health care program, something like that. She's a very high-level nurse in Israel. And what they do on the weekends on Shabbat is they go to different army bases and they're mechazik, the soldiers. And this is before we were talking about war, October 7th. This is an irregular time where the army bases, you know, wasn't so active, so crazy. It was like a nice thing. They go to the army base. They would spend Shabbos there. It was like a Kirov thing. And they would sing and then they would dance with them and they would have shalashudas with them. Sudach Lishit, excuse me. And they would do these whole, and it was very nice. Baruch Hashem. That Shabbos, they were on Zikim. And sure enough, they're awoken Shabbat morning, Simchas Torah morning, with the sounds of sirens. So she thinks to herself, okay, Zikim is right on the border of Gaza. She thinks it's like a stay road. It's like, okay, fine, another siren. So she wakes up, they go, to the, they go to the shelter, and apparently on that base they had a men's shelter and a women's shelter, but she didn't know that, so she went into the men's shelter, and they were in the shelter, and that was it. Okay, fine. And she thought to herself, okay, fine, what's the, you know, oh, it'll be for a few minutes, and then we'll go back to our beds. It was a five-something in the morning, six-something in the morning. Sure enough, someone comes running, and it says, is there a medic? Somebody got seriously injured. So she's thinking to herself, why would somebody get seriously injured, right? She's thinking it's a siren, like a routine siren. Maybe she fell off a watchtower. Maybe she was running to get to the, the thing and she fell. She didn't. She comes outside of the, of, the, of the bomb shelter and she sees this female soldier. Her name was Noah. And she's bleeding tremendously from her head. She didn't even realize that it was a gunshot wound. She wasn't processing. It was so early in the morning. These things weren't like processing in her head of what was happening. It takes the brain like so long to like sort of shift from like this is a normal situation to this is a terrifying catastrophic situation. And she goes and she starts getting to work on this girl Noah and they bring her into a room. So they're in this side room and she's dealing with her wounds as best she can. And there's a guy standing guard by the door and all of a sudden the soldier standing guard by the door falls, hits the ground, smack, done. And she's thinking to herself, what is, she's so like thrown off, so confused. She's like, what is going on? And she sees another soldier comes to the door and she's like, oh, fine, great. This is great. And she's like, okay, who's this guy? And then she looks at the guy's face and she says, in a split second, 
she explains this moment. It's like one of those moments in time where it probably lasted actually half a second, but the way she describes it, it sounds like it lasted 10 minutes. This soldier comes to the door, and she looks at him, and she's relieved. But then she looks at him and realizes he looks a little bit older than a regular soldier. And sure enough, this guy looks at her. He looks her in the eye, she says. He picks up a gun, and he opens fire at her. This guy wearing an Israeli soldier uniform. Obviously, we know at the time when they attacked the base, they, one of their tactics was they put on IDF uniforms. This was a Hamas operative. And he opened fire on her, and he hits her arm. A bullet hits her arm. A bullet hits her stomach. And a bullet hits, I forgot where else, somewhere else that it wasn't so severe. But the one that hit her stomach and her arm, she was bleeding tremendously. Right after he opened fire, another soldier came and ran and ambushed the guy, just ran and tackled him. But he had a knife on him, so he was literally hitting him with a knife. And she said another soldier came, and luckily with his aim and everything, while these two guys were wrestling, shot the original attacker, the, the, the terrorist. So she has her wounds. There's three soldiers on the base now that are severely injured. And there were seven commanders that were killed on the base. Now the problem is, is that she's losing a lot of blood. She's a nurse, so she assesses the situation. She said, these three that are injured are losing tremendous amount of blood. Right now, it doesn't seem like they're in any mortal danger if it was a normal medical situation. They're calling ambulances, they're calling emergency services, and nobody's coming. Probably one of the most horrific parts of the attack is that there was no response. There was no, like, even once people were radioed in, they found out afterwards, everyone, the army, emergency medical services, everyone was given a clear order. You cannot go, even. <coughs> they basically were left out with no help in a terrifying situation. They didn't even know this. So she's there for a few hours and she has no idea. They're radioing, they're calling, nobody's answering, nobody's coming. Sure enough, a guy shows up in an ambulance and he takes them. Who is this guy that shows up? Maybe Elio Anavi, but I, they actually know who it is. So I guess this time it's not Elio Anavi, but maybe Elio Anavi in the person in the form. This guy was a high level reservist officer. He was not called in yet. His unit would be called in later on, but he heard what was happening. He looked at the news and he just started driving towards Gaza. Meaning just think about like the people that we have around us. I'm sure you've heard stories like this, but to me, this is like the guy looks on the news. He reads on his phone. He reads on the app. What is 95% people's reaction is, do I have a mamad? Do I have a bomb shelter? Which makes sense. Where's my family? Where do I go? Should I book a flight and go to Tahiti? Should I go to America? Like everyone's wondering, what should I do? This guy jumps in his car, drives straight to Gaza, knowing that there's, who knows, he, they, they see, he's looking at the news. He knows that there's, they have no idea. Remember that moment. They had no idea how many terrorists came in. The army was completely taken aback. Every service that was supposed to be in that position did not do, it was just a crazy situation. And he drove straight into it. And not only that, he comes and he encounters a guy in an ambulance who got hit by a bullet. How did he, this guy, this ambulance, is stopped on the side of the road, and the guy says he's hit. So he says, okay, and he takes the ambulance. He jumps in the ambulance that the guy was just hit in, and he drives straight to the army base, and he picks up these people and brings them back to the hospital. So it's like these kind of stories, it's, it's unbelievable. Because if you actually think about it, it's not even something you have to go, because sometimes I used to argue with my friend of like, oh, you think back about like these stories of these Hasidic stories where they talk about the shtetl and the village and you're trying to imagine the little house and the little, with the little fireplace and there's snow and you're trying to picture to yourself these heroes, the Maccabees, you're trying to imagine it. It's like if you think about that one guy today, it's a mind-blowing thing. It's a story 
like any soldier that I'm friends with that right now is in Gaza, what I always tell them, which I hope gives them some chizuk, because I really, is that you have no idea you're going to be that guy for the rest of your life, you're going to be this legend. I know that doesn't help you right now. Maybe that doesn't help you. I don't know. I don't know because I'm not in that situation. I don't know what helps. But you are, you're going to be telling your grandkids this on Hanukkah in 60 years from now. You're going to be making donuts and eating latkes and everything and your grandkids are going to sit around and you're going to tell them the time you were a Maccabee. It's an unbelievable thing. So, L'chaim, like we started off, that they should only be protected. We should celebrate them and realize that we have our heroes today. We have no excuses to say of, oh, who's not here and who could be here and who could show us the way and everything. We have everything that we need to get the job done, to do what we got to do, to finish this off. All of us as a people, I think especially being here in Israel, I have to say, I would definitely be, you know, losing my mind if I was in America and I wasn't like part of this. I feel like being here in Israel, even though I'm not on the front lines in Gaza, I feel like we're a part of this. I feel like we're all in this, you know, we're all in this together. So L'chaim will be successful, this will be over, and we'll be celebrating very soon. Amen.